The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Church can be controversial. It's not just something for modern days, not just something right now, but church can be controversial. It's always been like that throughout history. Church is a place that can push. Church is a place that can offend. Church is just a place. Its presence in society, not just what happens in church, but its presence in society can be controversial. And this has always been true. And I want to give you one example of that. I want to show you in just a second, I want to show you a painting that's an example of that. And it comes out of a time in history called the Reformation. Now here's why uh, that's kind of timely for right now. Most people, when you think of October 31st, you think of Halloween, but it's also known for something called Reformation Day. It's actually when effectively the Reformation happened. You say, okay, what in the world is the Reformation? You're, I know you're like a church nerd, but the rest of us, what are you, what are you talking about? Okay, the Reformation is a time in history when most of Europe, this is the 1500s, the vast majority of Europe was Catholic. And there were a group of, of priests and nuns and monks who kind of, at the same time, God's stirring in them, uh, prominently led by a guy named Martin Luther. And he says, look, I'm not sure we've got it right. We've got church tradition weighing very heavily over here, and we've got the scripture. But among other things, they said, you know, but I think what we're supposed to look at is scripture alone. I think that's what we're supposed to stand on, just on the Bible. It's the only authority. It's not the Bible and the church. It's just the Bible. And so they took this very strong stand, and it became the Reformation. And splitting off from the Catholic Church, you have Protestant churches, or what some people just commonly call Christian church, church like ours. And this wasn't just like a little debate inside the church. This was huge. This was the hot potato of the day. I mean, this affected kings and nobles. This was, I mean, th- there were riots, there were executions, there were battles. I mean, this was the hot potato internationally in Europe of the day. And so I want to show you just one example of how controversial it can be. It's a painting. Look at this painting. This painting is what's called an altarpiece. So that means it's the painting in a cathedral that's at the very front. So if you're sitting in this sanctuary of a, of a cathedral and you're looking straight in the front, this is, the altarpiece would be possibly the most famous artwork in that cathedral. And this was part of it. This was one of the panels. But I want to show you why this is so controversial. This was painted by a famous painter named Lucas Cronach, is the way his name's pronounced. And he was very close to Martin Luther. In fact, he was the godfather of uh, Martin Luther's kids, and Martin Luther was the godfather of his kids. He was very close. And so he understood all that was happening in the Reformation. I mean, everyone knew what was going on in this time period. And so he painted this showing the issues of the day. And so what you have is a preacher preaching to his congregation. And the actual preacher that he painted, that's actually Martin Luther. He painted this a couple years after he died. That's actually Martin Luther. And he's preaching to this congregation. And this congregation were actual people from this town called Wittenberg. They're actually people in that town, including he painted himself into that picture. You can see in the the upper top, the guy with the big, long, white beard. That's Cronach himself. He painted himself in there. You see a woman um, sitting the very front on the, on the bottom, and she's got a little boy uh, by her knee. That's Martin Luther's wife and son. See, there's actual people in there. And here, but here's what's so controversial about this painting. Not only that Martin Luther's in it, 
But you see, he's pointing, he's preaching, but he's pointing to the Bible, and he's pointing to this image in the middle of Jesus crucified. And it's essentially saying that his sermon that he's preaching, he's preaching out of the Bible, and what he's pointing to his congregation, his sermon is Jesus crucified. And it's, it, it's really powerful. You can see that Martin Luther, he's preaching, but his mouth is closed. And if you look through the rest of the painting, if you get up close, you can see everyone's mouth is closed except for one person. Jesus hanging on the cross, his mouth is open. And this powerful point is that, is that this painter is saying what Martin Luther did, what these Protestant churches, these Christian churches are doing, is they're preaching out of the Scripture. And what they find in the Scripture is predominantly one thing. It's Jesus Christ crucified. And that gospel message is what preaches into their lives. This was a very controversial painting. It touched on a very hot potato issue, the hot potato issue of the day. And this is just one example of why church can be so controversial, and it has been throughout history, and it is today. Now, why do I bring all this up? This morning, we're going to talk about something that's about as controversial as we could get. We're going to address something, we're going to look at the scripture, we're going to address it, and it's controversial, and it's one of those things that happens throughout history, but we're just going to address it. But I'm not going to tell you what it is, I'm going to leave you hanging, because I'm mean like that. I'm going to leave you hanging, and we're going to go right to the scripture. I want you to open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look first at verse 16. 2 Timothy 3.16. Before we read that, let me give you a little background on this uh, book of the Bible. It's called 2 Timothy. We call it a book. It's actually a letter. But it's it's a very emotional letter. It's written from Paul to a guy named Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor. He's a young man. Paul is advanced in age. And they're very, very close Paul is a father figure for Timothy, not just spiritually speaking, he's not just a spiritual mentor, he's a father figure for Timothy. And that's significant for both for Timothy, because we know a little bit about his family background, but it's significant for Paul too. Paul was never married, never had kids of his own. Timothy is probably, in his mind, um, his child. In fact, throughout this letter, he continually refers to Timothy as my child. It's very emotional. He actually calls him my beloved child. At the end, he urges him multiple times, please come visit me as soon as you can. And he has told him why in this letter. He's imprisoned and he says, my life, uh, it's coming to an end. He's, He's expecting to be executed at any time for his faith, for his preaching as a missionary. And he says, my time is coming to a close. So really what we have here, what God has preserved for us in this letter, we have a farewell letter from a father to a son. So powerful that obviously Timothy passed it on to the church he was pastoring. They passed it to other churches and we have it today. And it's it's just charged with emotion. You can imagine as you read this letter, it was written with tears and it was read with tears. And the charge is powerful and it still rings rings true today. Let's look at this. 2 Timothy 3.16. We're going to jump right in the middle. This is what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
So remember, these are just the essentials. This is a farewell, farewell letter from, from Paul to this young pastor, Timothy. And, and one of the things that was key is he reminded him, man, all Scripture is God-breathed. I mean, it's just breathed out by God. Here's what he's saying. All the things that we have in the Bible, this is interesting because if you zoom out, this is the Bible talking about itself. So you zoom out, what does the Bible say about itself? Is it just a collection of holy writings? Is it some wise commandments? Is it some wise ways to live? No, what it's saying is through each of these personalities that have written throughout the Bible, kings, shepherds, uh, lawgivers, you have fishermen, you have physicians, through each of these people, it's that God has breathed through them and has written down a truth in a way that's unique. This is not simply saying, like when you've read a good book, man, God sent that into my life right when I needed it. That was just, that was so helpful. That was from God. No, no, it's more than that. It's that these words are from God through the, through the personality of these writers. God had them write uniquely his truths. Paul is reminding Timothy, all of Scripture, this is from God. This is God's message. It is from him, and it's to us. This is what he says. Now, here's why this is significant. If, um, you, you were to, if I was to get a group of pastors around, like a little circle of pastors, and we were to talk shop, and you were to listen in on, on how we talk and talk about preaching, you'd hear us talk about preaching like this. There's some types of preaching that's called expositional and there's some types of preaching that's called topical. And we would be, in our nerdliness, you know, talking about these different types of preaching. Let me give you an example. Uh, one type of topical preaching is, let me come up with an idea. All right, Thanksgiving's coming up. I probably should say something about being thankful. So what are some ideas I have about being thankful? Yeah, this is a good reason to be thankful, and this is. And okay, now I've got that. Now let me find where it says that in the Bible. Well, this verse kind of says it, and this verse, so I'll string those verses together, and I'll say that concept, that topic that was in my mind. That's typically topical preaching. Then there's another type of preaching. It's called expositional, and it's simply this. Okay, let me start with the Bible. What does this Bible say? What, what, is, what does this passage say? God, you breathed it, you preserved it, so what does it say? It says, okay, this is what it's saying. Okay, God, how do you want our church to be transformed by this? See, one starts with an idea and finds the Bible. One starts with the, Bi- the Bible and brings out an idea. And that is what we do here at our church. It's called expositional. It's where we stand on the scripture saying, this is from God. Let's mine the text and let's teach it. Okay, so this is what Paul is saying to Timothy, starting with this. Man, Scripture is breathed out by God. Never forget that. Okay, hang with me. Let's see what he says next. You can see, you'll see the momentum, the emotional momentum is starting to pick up in this letter. He's getting towards the end of this letter and he says this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom... Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Okay, you got to hear how he's setting this up. He's not just saying, uh, Timothy, okay, here's a couple things. Remember about the Bible and remember, oh, don't forget, be a good preacher. You know, work hard at it. No, that's not what he says. He's saying, this is farewell letter. He's saying, I'm charging you. I'm commissioning you. I'm challenging you. He doesn't say just with all my moral authority over you as a mentor. He's saying, before God, I'm telling you this, Timothy. 
He's saying, he's saying, Timothy, man, as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, he's saying, this is what I'm telling you to do. Before the one Jesus who will judge you one day, you are commissioned to do this. Preach the word. Go into the scripture. What does the scripture say? Dig it out, and it is your mission to preach that out. And he says, be ready. Be ready in season and out season. Be ready at all times, he says, because this is what that means. If you're just taking the text and preaching it, it's going to be uncomfortable. If you're starting with the scripture and then, talk, and then we're exploring it as a church, rather than saying, what do we want to talk about and finding it in the scripture? If we start with the scripture, it will push us. He says this, man, when you do that, it's going to reprove, it's going to rebuke, and it's going to exhort He says it's going to reprove. What does that mean? Reprove is exposing. In the book of James, it talks about the Bible is like a mirror. It's like it shows us for who we really are, not what we want to see ourselves as. It shows us who we are, motivations circling in our hearts that we didn't even realize that we had. It says it exposes. It's going to reprove. It's going to rebuke. There's going to be times when it's calling out things that are hard for me. It's going to be convicting. I don't want to... I don't want to hear it. I don't want to preach it. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to rebuke. He says there's going to be times that it's going to exhort. It's going to plead. It's going to encourage. It's going to mandate. It's going to be, it's going to be digging in and begging. He says, be ready. It is an uncomfortable thing you're calling, he says, Timothy. In fact, um, one of my uh, favorite preachers is uh, probably... I think I could easily say the greatest preacher of the uh, 1800s is a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And he's actually known today as the Prince of Preachers. He's a, he was an incredible guy. I mean, you can picture, we have tons of his sermons recorded, uh, written down, and um, you can just imagine him. He would stand in this, this cathedral, thousands of people, there's no sound system. So he's just bellowing out with all of his passion these sermons. And one of the sermons he gave to his people is he preached with them what it means to be a good preacher. And he shared this message, and he's talking about, well, this is what it looks like to preach. This is what you want in a preacher. He says, this is what it looks like. And he says, um, he refers to them as harvest men. This is what he says. I want you to hear this quote. The harvest never can be reaped by men who will not labor. They must off with their coats and go at it in their shirt sleeves. I mean, they must doff their dignities and get to Christ's work as if they meant it, like real harvestmen. They must sweat at their work, for nothing in the field can be done without the sweat of the face, not in the pulpit without the sweat of the soul. He says there's a very genteel order of preaching, which is as ridiculous as reaping with a lady's ivory-handled pocket knife with kid gloves on, and I do not believe in God's ever blessing it. He says the preacher must not make the preacher must make his sermons cut. He is not to file off the edges of his scythe for fear it should hurt somebody. Listen, no, my hearers, we mean to hurt you. Our sickle is made on purpose to cut. The gospel is intended to wound the conscience and go right through the heart with the design of separating the soul from sin and self as the corn is divided from the soil. Yeah, he could bring it. (laughs) This guy, he was for real. This is what Paul's saying to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, I'm, I'm commanding you before God and before the one you will stand in front of and give an account, you have to preach 
the word and know it's going to cut. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt to preach and it's going to hurt to hear. Let's see where he goes next. Verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here's what he warns Timothy. He says, hey, Timothy, there's going to come a day. And that day has, was in Timothy's day, and it's been in every generation, and it is today. He says there's going to come a day when people have itching ears. They've got what they want to hear, and, and they want it to scratch that itch. They've got their passions. They've got their things that they want to hear, and they're going to go find people who will, who will tell them that they're, they're itching ears. He says, beware, there's going to come a day when people, they, just, they know what they want to hear, and, and it's not necessarily what they need to hear, but they have what they want to hear, and they're going to go find people who will tell them what they want to hear. They've got their passions, their agendas, and they'll go find people to say it. He says, you cannot fall for that. You've got to dig in the scripture and teach it. You've got to teach what people need, what we need, and sometimes that's not what we want. Okay, let me, let me put it like this. Um, would you rather have a doctor that tells you what you want to hear or what you need to hear? When I was in college, I was playing a pickup game with some of my buddies. It was like late at night, and um, I, I gashed open my thumb. I mean, it was bad. There was blood everywhere. If you know me, I nearly passed out. Okay, I had a friend that had to drive me to the hospital. I ended up needing seven stitches in my thumb. It was really bad. And um, Rebecca and I went to college in this, uh, in this very rural part of Indiana. It was in the middle of the cornfields in Indiana. And so the hospitals were really small operations. And so my buddy is driving me to the hospital. It's late at night. I'm like deathly pale. My lips are blue. I'm trying to stay conscious. Okay. We, well, I mean, that's a near-death experience, the thumb, okay? And we pull into this hospital, and we walk into the emergency room. And, and when I say there's a small operation, I mean, it was really small. Okay, we walk in, into the ER. The doors are unlocked and open, but the lights are out. And there's no one sitting behind the reception desk. There's no one in there. And we're looking around like, okay. And, and one of us is like, hello? And all of a sudden, an, an orderly just pokes his head out from behind. Hey, how you doing? Well, not good because I'm in the ER, okay? <laughs> so I said, I showed him, like, I showed him my thumb. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're definitely going to need, need stitches. And so we go back around. And, and um, I'm, I'm lying there on the gurney. And he's going through this checklist. And I'm just wanting him to speed it along here. And he says, okay, do you have any allergies? And I said, well, actually, um, I may have an allergy. When I was a, a young child, I had an allergic reaction. I went into anaphylactic shock, and it was a real touchy situation. And, and the doctors don't know exactly what it was, but it may have been from an allergic reaction to lidocaine. And he says, oh. He says, well, what did they tell you? He said, well, they told me to stay away from that whole family of medicines just to be safe. He's like, well, I can't give you stitches without using something uh, that's similar to that, that medicine. I, I don't, I mean, I, I can't do that. And I'm like, well, what do we do? He's like, well, I guess I could just stitch you up with, you know, with no pain medication. And I'm like, that's not, just cut the thumb off, okay? That's not what we're going to do. And he says, all right, well, here's what we'll do. And I think he just told me what I wanted to hear. He says, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'll just monitor you very closely, and I'll go ahead and give you the medication. 
I'm like, okay, if, you, if that's what you think. And I'm like, hey, that makes me feel a little better. So I'm laying there. I'm, he's stitching me up, okay, and, and he's put all kinds of shots and all kinds of medication in my thumb, and he's stitching me up. And about two-thirds of the way through, I'm like, so, hey, when would I know if I'm allergic to lidocaine? And he goes, oh, you're not allergic to lidocaine. He says, if you're allergic to lidocaine, you'd have been gone a long time ago. <laughs> Would have appreciated that information a little earlier, okay? Thank you for making me feel good at the beginning, but I would have appreciated the full story. Okay, do you want a doctor that's just telling you what you want to hear or telling you what you need to hear? And I think we all agree, we want a doctor with good bedside manner. We want a doctor that's gracious and, and can enter into the emotions of the moment, say it gently. But we want a doctor in the end that's going to say what we need to hear. What Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying in his final words in this farewell letter, he's saying, Timothy, you've got to be bold. You've got to understand that the scripture is from God. That's what we have to mine. We have to teach what's in the scripture. Be ready. It's going to cut and be ready to teach what the church needs to hear, not what the church wants to hear. He's essentially saying, and, and this is saying, this is what you want out of a church, this is what you want. Out of preaching, this is what you want out of a sermon. Is it biblical? Is it honest? Does it cut? And is it what I need to hear, not what I want to hear? And they say, okay, you're, you're giving us a, you're preaching on preaching. Okay, why are you doing this? Okay. I want to let you know what to expect because we're entering into a season where there's going to be some itching ears uniquely in our country. Over the next 12 months, there will be people who are passionate to hear things, people who are itching to hear things, itching for the church to avoid things. You see, this time next year, we'll be electing a president. And I want us all to be on the same page as a church with what you can expect from your church. I want, us all, I want to just go right into this directly so that we are all on the same page with how we as a church are going to handle this over the next couple years. Here's what you can expect. Regardless of the people saying, don't handle this, or handle this more, or you should talk about this, or you should tell people to vote, or, or you shouldn't tell people how to vote, but just tell them almost everything up to how to vote, or you should just not even touch that at all. That's not the church's business. Okay, all that, that itching of what people want to hear and don't want to hear, let me just, let's together establish from the scripture what we can expect, what God wants as we stand before God and give an account what you can expect from this stage. We're going to mine the scripture, we're going to teach it, and it's going to cut, it's going to hurt, and it's going to be often what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. I haven't gotten to the tough part yet, you don't know. I'm glad you're cheering now, but you may regret that in a few moments, okay? Let's dig in on this. Let's make this cut. Your church is not Republican. Your church is not Democrat. We're Christian. Your church does not have an allegiance to a candidate for president. 
We do not have an allegiance to a candidate for the Senate or for the House. We have an allegiance to the King of the universe. Dear church, we stand on one pure source of truth, and that is the Bible. There is no other agenda, there is no other message in the world that is perfect. If it was, we would make some space for it in our Bibles and insert it in there. There is one perfect truth that we will stand on, and it is the Scripture. So here's what that means. Whatever party you are affiliated with, it is imperfect because only the Scripture is perfect. So that means your responsibility Your responsibility is to take whatever party you're affiliated with and hold it up to one source, the Bible. And you hold it up and you are responsible having your first allegiance to the Bible to be honest with where it aligns and where it does not align. Okay, can we, let's, I want to dig in here. Okay, I want to talk about this, how this cuts. We're mandated by the scripture to mine what is in here and to present it. And what this says is that we take a stand for justice and righteousness. And as we do that, it doesn't matter what your political affiliation is when you enter in here. There will be times that you are offended regardless of your political affiliation. Why? Because this reproves, rebukes, and exhorts. It corrects, it cuts. I want to just give you an honest example of how no matter what party you affiliate with, there will be times where you are pushed and offended. We are called to stand for justice. And so there's, we're going to look in Scripture and we're going to find things like Jesus. God is saying, I knit you together in your mother's womb. It says, I'm at work forming you in your mother's womb. It says things like, Jeremiah, I already placed faith in you when you're still in your mother's womb. It has passages where where Mary, pregnant with Jesus, approaches Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist, filled already with the Holy Spirit in the womb, leapt in response to the presence of Jesus. And so there are times where we're going to say, we stand for justice, and we will say boldly, there are millions of babies that are being executed in our culture. And that's going to push and offend Democrats that call West Pines their church home. That call this church their church. It's going to offend. But Republicans, there's going to be times that you're offended. There's going to be times when we're mining for justice and we're saying, okay, we are to boldly speak against structures of inequality in our culture. And we're to boldly say there is discrimination, whether it's gender, economic, or racial discrimination, and it's not just interpersonal always. There are structures, and they have to be addressed. And Republicans, there's going to be times when how we're teaching it from Scripture, you may be offended. We're called to teach justice and also righteousness. There's going to be times where we're going to teach, and we're like we did earlier in the spring, and we're going to say, okay, here's what the Bible says about sexuality, about gender, and about marriage. And we're going to say, this is what the Bible says, and it's going to push you some, of you, some of you Democrats. And then there's going to be times that we're going to say, okay, at the same time, remember this, there's only one way that a soul can be transformed according to the Bible. And it's not from the outside in, it's from the Holy Spirit from the inside out. And so we recognize that laws cannot change a soul and cannot change the soul of our country. 
And Republicans, that's going to push you. See, why this cuts so much is because we have an allegiance to the Bible. We do not, we don't have the luxury of having an allegiance to a party. We stand on what this says. We go in and say, Jesus, what do you have for us as a church? And we mine it out and we teach it no matter how it pushes us, cuts us, or offends us. Now, some, some might be saying, okay, but why don't you just talk a little more openly? I wish you'd talk a little bit more often about these issues. Can you talk a little bit more openly? Like, I, I know you're not going to just straight out say, okay, vote for this person or vote for this law, but why can't you talk a little bit more, a little bit more often? Why can't you do that? And some have suggested it's because, well, you know, a lot of churches are afraid. They're afraid to talk openly about those things. They're afraid of losing their tax-exempt status. They're maybe afraid of offending someone that comes to attend. Man, they don't want to offend anyone. Can I just respond to that? Your leaders, your pastors, those of us who are called and will stand before God to, to teach the word, every single week we look into the eyeballs of the people that God has brought here and we say, you are facing an eternity in hell if you do not put your faith in Jesus. I promise you, our motives for ha- how we're handling this issue is not out of fear of offending someone. If it was out of fear, we would have avoided our calling and found a different career path. Our calling is to preach the gospel boldly. But can't you also do that and teach a little, can't you spend a little bit more time on this? Will you uh, please understand we have a higher priority than just simply the things of this world that will pass away. We care more about who will spend be in heaven for eternity than we care about who will be in the White House for four years. There are souls at stake and there's a priority we are mandated with as preachers of the gospel as a church. It's as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, he says this to the church in Corinth. He says, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture we have a mandate we are to, to, to teach Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead to save souls for eternity I promise you our biggest need in this country is not yet another outlet to discuss politics. There are plenty of newspapers, blogs, TV shows, radio programs. There are plenty to discuss politics. What we need is more outlets boldly and unabashedly and unashamed proclaiming the one hope for the world, and that is Jesus Christ on the cross and risen from the dead. The temptation is to say, okay, but... Is that, I mean, but our, 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 our country, our world, I mean, is that just enough? Is that, I mean, we, we've got to be more active, but can you hear the question that's underneath that? It's asking, is Jesus Christ enough? He's the one that said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He is. He is the hope for the world. He is the one way that, that 
our neighbors, our friends, our communities, our cities, our nation, and this world will be brought to God. It is through Jesus. He's, of course Jesus is enough. Here's what you can expect from your church over the next 12 months. You can expect that what we're going to continue to do is prayerfully open up the scripture and say, God, what are you wanting us to hear? We do that months in advance. We map out what God's doing months in advance. God, we're praying through scriptures and, and getting ready for, for them to be taught. So, but then again, sometimes right at the last minute, God's like, okay, wait a minute, this is going on. I want you to teach this. And so we, we will continue to go into the scriptures and bring that out and teach out of what the scripture says. You can be prepared that we're going to continue to teach. No matter what it says, we're going to teach it, even if it cuts, even if it reproves, rebukes, and exhorts. We will continue to teach what we need to hear, not necessarily what we want to hear. But here's what that means is expected of you. As you hear this gospel, you hear Jesus on the cross, let it flood into every category of your life. It should affect how you spend your time, how you spend your finances, how you parent. It should affect your marriage, your relationships, and it should affect your politics. I hope you get engaged. I hope you listen. I hope you hear what's being said and you hold it up to Scripture. I hope you boldly vote. I hope you do that. But there's one more thing. Never forget that you are first and foremost a citizen of heaven. And so please... We as Christians, you are commissioned to go out of here and get involved. But please, take more time, more energy, and more passion to evangelize for the gospel than your political party. Please, first and foremost, remember the hope that you have. And some of you, God has called you to be in the midst of the political discussion and that is God's calling. But remember your citizenship first and foremost for the kingdom of heaven and what the real hope is for this world and for this nation. I want to draw your attention back to this painting that we talked about at the beginning. And you see, it's just such a beautiful painting. You see Martin Luther is standing there and he's just pointing to the to scripture and he's pointing to this image because he's saying, we open the Bible and what do we find chiefly? Page after page, cover to cover, we see Jesus crucified and his sermons are painting a picture of Jesus crucified on the cross. And that's what's speaking out to his congregation. And you notice it's kind of this awkward, it's kind of an awkward painting because there's nothing else in this church. Just this empty room. And that would have been even more shocking to the people who originally saw this painting because they're used to these ornate cathedrals with sculptures and carvings, but there's a point to the awkwardness of this painting. There's nothing in that church but Jesus crucified. You know, the interesting thing about Cranach, the painter, is you know what his other job was? He was first and foremost a, a painter, but you know what his other job was? He was a politician. But he knew what the point of the church was. Let me show you one other thing in this painting. If you'll notice, about halfway up, there's a young woman, and she's the only one in the painting that's not looking at Christ, but she's looking at the viewer of the painting. She's a young woman, and she's, she's looking. She's kind of in between these, these two women, and she's looking directly out. And scholars that have looked at this, art historians have looked at this and said, man, what is going on with that particular person? 
And what many people believe is that is uh, Luther's daughter. Now, remember, Cranach was the godfather of Luther's children. And that's Luther's daughter who died when she was 13 years old. And it absolutely crushed the Luthers. And so you have this picture of this daughter, and she's the only one in the crowd. She's looking out the viewer. She's meeting the viewer's gaze. Now, why would he do that with that particular young woman? What I think is going on here is that's to remind us how important this is because life is so short. You could start teaching people how to vote a year in advance, but they might be standing before God before they're ever standing before the voting booth. And you have this gaze saying, this is the place where unadulterated, the, the, uh, nothing else messes with Christ on the cross, risen from the dead, the gospel, which is what preaches and transforms our lives. But is that enough? Is Jesus enough? Church, we're not talking about just another religion. We're not talking about, well, let's just sprinkle some more morals, some more, so, some more kind of religious church talk throughout, throughout our, our, our country. Let's just sprinkle a little more morals. No, we're talking about the gospel. We're talking about this thought, this idea, this concept that you cannot find anywhere else in the world, in the universe. Something so elegant, something so beautiful, something so surprising, and something so scandalous. It has to come from God. It's not another message on how to climb and claw your way to heaven. Another list of morals on how to be good enough to get God's acceptance. It's something so much more profound. It's the one message that, that is God saying to humanity, you cannot get to me, so I am coming down, I am condescending, I am entering into creation as a man to take all of that wrath and punishment of your sin that you deserve, I'm taking it on myself in Jesus. He takes all of our sin and he places it on Jesus and he takes Jesus' perfection, his righteousness, and places it on us. Do you realize this is something utterly different than the world has ever heard? Something that defies categories, it shatters consciences. This is something that, will, that radically transforms. Do you realize he doesn't just save you for eternity and leave you there? Do you realize he enters into your soul and he transforms all of the, the sin sickness in our hearts? Do you realize he's the one that is with you always as you're walking through the shadows of your circumstances? He's the one that's guiding you through the murkiness of the uncertainty of your life right now? He's the one that you're fixing your eyes on and one day when you exhale your last on this planet, you will inhale into eternity and you'll be facing your Savior and he will welcome you to himself, and he will wrap his, his scarred hands around you, and he will whisper in your ear something that you do not deserve, but something he bought for you. He will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And when you hear that whispering in your ear, you will know that you have heard that voice whispering in your soul all of your life. It is your Savior, it is your King, and you will realize everything else in this world passes away. It's, is Jesus enough? Jesus is everything. And here's what you can expect from your church. We will always stand on that and we will always preach that. And may that be what we are all preaching as we walk out of here, first and foremost, above everything else. Now you might be here and you might be saying, here's the thing. Jesus is not my everything. Everything. Jesus is a slice 
And in my life, it's been Jesus, yeah, but plus other things. But maybe this morning you say, no, Jesus is enough. Jesus is everything. Jesus is where my eyes are fixed. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus is the one. I'm following after him, holding nothing back. And maybe today you say, I, I, need to, I, I need to be all in. I need to put my faith. Jesus, you saved me by your work on the cross. You, you sacrificed everything for me. Now I give everything back to follow you. For some of you, you may, may need to say today, I, I need to put my faith in Jesus for the first time so that I know I'll be facing Jesus when I breathe my last here on this earth. I want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus for the first time this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you and you say, I need to put my faith in Jesus, then this prayer is for you. Just pray this simple prayer between you and God. Right there in your seats, make these words, your words from your heart. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for washing all my sins away. Thank you for having a plan that redeems me even though I don't deserve it. Thank you for having a plan that lets me have eternity in heaven when I die. I want that truth to define every category of my life. I follow you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.